Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. It was interesting to see the uh, short end, the two-year Treasury yields decline as well by the second most uh, so far this year in response to uh, the press conference. It was interesting to hear what Jay Powell said about trade, uh, even though he said that they do not do trade policy. He said, trade is a new risk, a low-profile risk that has become more prominent to the outlook with respect to how much it could curtail it. Here with us, Ibrahim Rahbari, City Group Head of Global Macroeconomics, joining us here in our 1130 studios. Ibrahim, thank you so much for being with us. I want to start with trade because Jay Powell, uh, you know, pretty much stayed the course yesterday. But trade is really the big question. And from your perspective, based on what we know from President Trump's administration, how much do you think the rhetoric that we have heard so far will curtail economic growth uh, this year? Yeah, well, thank you. It's a pl- pleasure to be here today. And I I think our base case is it won't curtail activity that much, uh, at least in the U.S. this year. That's on the assumption that we will see something along the lines of what the media reported uh, will be announced today and that the response to that will be fairly moderate from, from other countries, uh, notably China, of course. So in that scenario, I think trade might be roughly neutral even for, for, for the U.S. or ever so slightly negative. Because of course, some U.S. companies are actually going to benefit from what these from what the administration tries to, to achieve. Well, let's let's just be very clear here. So we've already gotten the steel tariffs, uh, but what we're really talking about today is the potential uh, crackdown on theft of intellectual property from China. So that is what we're talking about. We're expecting possibly fifty billion dollars of sanctions in some in some form or another from President Trump today. I want to talk specifically about the escalations there because we are hearing that China would retaliate by way of grains and the mid and the Midwest states. So given a sort of escalation of that, would that change your outlook? No. And I think uh, if it if it if it is limited indeed to retaliation that's perhaps targeted at specific states, mostly in the agricultural sector, then I think it's significant for those sectors, but I don't think it will be more uh, than a, a very minor influence on yeah. our macro forecast, the Fed's uh, overall outlook as well, and therefore monetary policy. We're going to uh, catch up with Bloomberg's Tom McKenzie from Beijing a little bit later in the program to get more details on how China may respond to the tariffs that could be unveiled later by the president. I want to get your view on the Federal Reserve, Ibrahim. What did we learn about the reaction function of Chairman Powell yesterday? Well, relative to, I think, uh, the uncertainty and, 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 and some expectations, I think he came through as very gradualist uh, and in some sense as very little changed from uh, the leadership under, under his predecessor uh, and clearly reactive. So I think the most significant uh, statement in, in the press conference was that the committee didn't see any signs of an acceleration of inflation. So that tells me they're going to stay the course. I think it's still the expectation that we will see a hike a quarter until, quote-unquote, something breaks. But we're certainly not seeing a change of tack. Here. The message seems to be, show me the data. Now, Federal Reserve Chair Janet Yellen used to say we're data-dependent, but this sounds like an individual that is truly going to be data-dependent who is not married to a certain economic model and the expectations of what might develop based on that. Is that your interpretation too? 
I, I, I would certainly think that he's not quite as as wedded to a certain way of looking at the data in the uh, sort of academic tradition of Phillips curves, neutral rates, they came up very often as well. I don't think he's more data dependent than uh, Chairman Yellen was, but I think he was at least clearer that he didn't see the trade-off between growth and inflation in a way that would necessarily push him to catch up with that outlook. Meanwhile, uh, perhaps Fed uh, Powell isn't necessarily offering up a prediction of where he sees the credit cycle, uh, but some investors have, some prominent investors, and they're starting to see, in particular Scott Minard of uh, Guggenheim Investment uh, Management, seeing a flat yield curve in a year and a recession six to nine months after that. Do you agree? So I think the risk of a recession or at least a significant downturn over the next two to three years is pretty high. And and I would guess it would be associated with a flat yield curve as well. Now, of course, the uncertainty around it is high, too. When we think about downturns, what we have to think about is vulnerabilities and shocks. Vulnerabilities are clearly going up. Shocks are hard to predict. But I think that two to three year horizon seems very plausible. Just in terms of yesterday, the disappointment for um, very hawkish expectations was that we didn't quite make it to four hikes for 2018. We did drift higher in terms of their projections for rates through 2019 through 2020. And to Lisa's point, this flattening of the curve, you do have this situation where rates in 2020 are actually materially higher above where they see the long-term neutral rate. What do you make of that dynamic in terms of their forecasting at the moment, Ibrahim? I think it is very interesting. And I think particularly what's been going on for the 2020 dot over the last six months is actually very interesting. If you go back to September, only five people at the uh, on the FOMC were at 3% or higher. Now it's 12. So it's a really big change in, in that specific number. I personally think uh, w- one reason why that number is now 3.4% above the long-term neutral rate is actually so that they don't have to raise rates faster today. So it's a warning sign for things not to get out of hand that may have some calming influence. Does this play into that idea that they are still slightly cautious about the potential of overheating? I think they're cautious, but at the same time, again, I think they're kind of, they're fairly reactive. So I think what uh, uh, the new chair laid out yesterday is I think the data have to convince him that inflation is picking up faster than expected. Yeah, How much is this out of the Fed's hands? How much of this has to do with the fact that the U.S. is issuing a greater proportion uh, of debt on the short end to finance its deficit, thus raising the rates uh, in the near term at the expense of growth over the long term, leading to a flattening of the yield curve, even if the Fed is somewhat cautious? So very recently, we've seen a lot of movement in, 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 in the short end for a variety of reasons. As you mentioned, I- I- issuance is, is one. Uh, we've seen uh, the tax ban affect corporate behavior as well. And the Fed, of course, is also changing its, its, its balance sheet. But in terms of the steepening or flattening dynamic that we've seen over the last couple of months, the long end actually did move significantly too. And I think there, it isn't really, uh, it isn't really these factors, even though tax plan and uh, Fed balance sheet coming. But to Lisa's point, Ibrahim, something is happening at the front end in terms of short-term borrowing costs, whether you go through LIBOR, commercial paper, what you see in short-dated investment grade, treasury bills, borrowing costs in the short term are getting higher. Now, is that going to result in tighter financial conditions in a way that perhaps the Fed doesn't actually quite want just yet? Yes, and I was uh, curious to see that nobody asked them about that specific well, aspect. Well, that's a failure of the press pack in a news conference, isn't it? <laughs> well, uh, you you tell your colleagues, but um... you know what? I think he will. <laughs> <laughs> 
I do think, I mean, there's a debate. I think there is a moderate um, degree of uh, financial tightening coming through on that score. My expectation for now is it will actually reverse. And that I think yeah. the Fed is going to wait to see to see that happen. And it is linked to some of these influences like the tax plan, but perhaps also Treasury issuing. Ibrahim Rakbari, Citigroup Head of Global Macroeconomic It's a big question. How much will a full-blown trade war uh, crimp the economic growth that we've seen so far? Lara Ram is going to um, answer that question for us in complete detail, and you can trade on it from here on out. Lara Ram is FS Investments Chief U.S. Economist. So um, give us a number. All right. Uh, Number of (laughs) A percent of a a crimp in the U.S. economy. Yeah. Uh, You know, small, uh, really small. I think, you know, less than 0.1 percent in in terms of economic impact of tariffs. I think one of the questions we had to ask ourselves, you know, two months ago, this market rally seemed unstoppable. It was a one-way rocket going higher. And I think it speaks to the fear and power of the, you know, the, any kind of protectionism yeah. that we've it's actually stopped. Like, what's changed between now and two months ago? It's really been this trade rhetoric. And, you know, the economy is still looking solid. Um, it, global economies are still looking solid. The Fed is getting a little more confident, but their outlook really hasn't changed. And in fact, we've had all this new government stimulus that makes the economy look even better. This rhetoric has power. And I think we all need to be humble in the face of that. So here's my question. Everyone is saying that you know the U.S. economy is gaining steam. It could possibly get an even bigger bump because of the tax cuts. What could change that would make you advise your clients that it is time to be more cautious. So I'm already there. Um, really? I think, so yeah, why? Because what you're saying sounds good. Because, you know, markets are so forward looking and there's already so much good news priced in. How do we get better news priced in from here? Everybody has been tripping over themselves to raise their GDP forecasts. So when I look ahead, I see, you know, our, an economy that's still really powered by the consumer. Well, that's great. But it's really powered more by wealth gains than wage gains. Right. And how do we connect that to financial markets? Because why do we care about the economy? We care about the economy because it's what drives our financial returns and our financial picture. And when you connect those dots, it makes the consumer hypersensitive to changes in market sentiment. So when I look out across growth over the next year, we're still overly reliant on the consumer business investment, green shoots of recovery there, but not, you know, really confident traction. And so I I see it as a more precarious picture with a lot of good news already priced in. Okay, so when you're saying that it's dependent on wealth gains, in other words, are you saying that a sell-off in equities could potentially lead directly to an economic downturn uh, especially without wage gains uh, for the U.S. consumers, and especially given the fact that U.S. consumers have actually packed on quite a bit of non-mortgage debt, which yeah. is set to uh, reprice given the higher short-term rates. Yeah, and you know, downturn is probably strong, but you know, moderation from here. And I, you know, look at the savings rate. A lot of people discount that, and I think that's a mistake um, because. People have forgotten how it felt to be overlevered going into the last, um, you know, downturn. Yeah. And I think right now, when we uh, look at what is powering the consumer, 
yes, everyone has a job, but the wages just aren't there. Lara, short-term borrowing costs are really starting to push higher, um, no matter what you look at. Um, what's the net effect of that on the U.S. economy at the moment? You know, that has a, a significant impact. A lot of the Treasury debt that's being issued is short-term debt, so that raises the funding costs for the government. And yeah, all these credit card debts, you know, um, you know, the short-term debt that consumers have taken on, a lot of that is uh, is priced off of the short end of the curve. So I think it's this chipping away. And it's human nature, right? We all get too pessimistic, and then we all get too optimistic. And that's what I saw at the end of last year. Everybody just embracing that Goldilocks growth and financial market uh, environment and forgetting that uh, we've had you know, complacency to me is really set in. And we're advising investors to be prepared for much higher volatility and to be really prepared for a much more difficult investment terrain to navigate. It's so interesting for me to hear you talk about consumer leverage because most analysts and economists I speak to write it off. They say if you look at it, it's, you know, on on a sort of per GDP growth basis or per household wealth level, uh, it's really not that big of a deal. And yet you raise a a really good point, which is there's sort of a two-tier system here. We've got the consumers that don't have mortgages that are paying higher fixed costs with rents, et cetera, uh, have taken out a record amount of debt, uh, whereas the wealthiest have remained uh, pretty pretty well set. Can you talk about how significant this is for the economic outlook going forward? So, you know, this is one of the things um, that we still need to really pay attention to because as we haven't seen the wage gains come through, it's really impacting everything. I was speaking to um, a group of, you know, human resources executives um, that really are at large um, nationally publicly traded companies. They talk about the fact that they are still being very cautious on the wage front and doing everything they can to not increase wages, um, partly because as they're publicly traded, they are really reticent to pass that along you know, through their earnings statements. So I think we have to wonder where we get to the quarter where either they end up passing along those higher costs and the earnings look less favorable. Um, But all of it really speaks to the fact that this tightness in the labor market and this um, strain on the consumer household balance sheet, something's got to give. So as John was pointing out really uh, wisely, the the rise in in interest rates, the rise in short-term rates, and we're talking LIBOR, which is one of the, the benchmarks, but also two-year yields and, and uh, take it take it uh, the range. How much will this directly go into higher defaults and delinquencies on this consumer debt? So you know, so far delinquency rates look really good, which is one of the things that uh, most analysts use to um, discount concern about this. Um, and defaults, uh, higher debt levels, they're never a problem until it's a big problem. Um, so, you know, I so, always, I always yeah. love speaking to the credit investor, Lisa, that turns around to you and says, credit's okay because default rates are low. Yeah, exactly. Uh, until they're right. not and it isn't. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. That's exactly right. So we're all sort of frogs in the pot, you know, but the yeah. heat is slowly getting turned up. So I think, you know, it really just speaks to the fact that um, when we get optimistic about growth, we need to still be realistic. You know, optimism to me is still two and a half percent growth, so low relative to past economic cycles. And the reason uh, for that is because when we look at the consumer and we look at how the consumer is powered going forward, there just isn't 
a lot of juice left in the juice box. You know, there's I think we're really coming to a place where we either need to see business investment pick up significantly or we need to see wages ride, rise, which means inflation. Um, and I think the fact that the consumer is so reliant on wealth gains means that there is a, a vulnerability there to a correction in the stock market, which is new for us watching the economy. Laura Rain, it's been great to catch up with you. Um, managing to make it over from Philadelphia to New York City in some terrible weather overnight. So thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. FS Investment Solutions Chief, US Economist. Today is World Water Day, we should recognize that. And to solve the global water crisis, it would take donations of about $200 billion a year. $200 billion a year. Uh, how much do you think, Pim, the aid is annually? <laughs> it's actually $8 billion, which is a huge gap. Here to talk about how to bridge that gap is Gary White and Matt Damon, co-founders of Water.org and Water Equity. Matt Damon is also known as his uh, for his side gig of acting. Um, but I want to start with you, Gary. I want to talk about uh, bridging this gap, how you're trying to attract investors, what the interest is, and frankly, for our audience, are there actual returns here or is this just a charity play? No, there actually are returns here. And I think that what underpins this is that, you know, there's billions of people who uh, lack access to water and sanitation. And the, the reason this can work as a invest, business investment model is because they spend hundreds of billions of dollars every year coping with this crisis. So they're spending time walking to collect water hours each day. Women will spend 200 million hours today walking to collect water. They could be spending that time in a productive activity or they're sick because of contaminated water. Uh, or in urban areas, is they're having to pay for water from water vendors, uh, sometimes 25% of their income. So it seems like there's a market here. And what we've been able to do is to connect investors with small loans, micro loans at the household level, so that women can get a water tap at their house, as opposed to walking hours each day to get water. And then they can use those savings or the, the time they spend working at a paying job to repay the loan. So we found a way to connect investors who want to have that social impact, but also our fund provides a, a targeted 3.5% financial return to investors while helping people escape the water crisis. So, Matt, I want to talk about your involvement in this. Obviously, um, you are known for other things other than water preservation. You're also known for the many Hollywood movies and awards that you've garnered over your lifetime. Um, I'm just wondering what attracted you to this and, uh, and sort of what has your celebrity brought? I mean, who are you trying to sort of target here? Uh, well, um, I got interested in the, in the issue of water and sanitation in 2006 on a, on a trip that I took to kind of learn about issues of extreme poverty. I, just the enormity of it just floored me. And the fact that nobody, I, I wasn't aware of anybody really talking about it. And um, so I started to try to get involved and, 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 and do something. I started something called H2O Africa. And we were basically trying to raise, raise funds for little NGOs that were doing good work um, uh, throughout Africa. And, and but I as, as I started to get more familiarized with the, the, the issue and the complexity of it, I was trying to think about how I could really maximize my impact, and and that was what made me think I should I should partner with the kind of preeminent expert I could find, and that's what led me to to Gary. and And Gary's being very humble about this idea of of microloans. He kind of pioneered this idea of taking the the concept of microfinance and applying it to the water sector. And he did that because he had spent his entire adult life in these communities and and had that realization that people were paying for water, the poorest of the poor 
were getting their water somehow, either either with their time or they were in, in many cases, as he said, spending up to 25% of their income just to get that water. And so, but what they didn't have was savings. So he knew they could pay off a loan if, 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 if we fronted them the money. You know, in a lot of these uh, urban areas, the, you know, the, the municipality is piping water right under the feet of the people who live in these slums. They're, they're just not connected to it. So they're paying 10 to 15 times more for their water than the middle class in their country. So, so the theory went, and when I first met Gary, this was kind of in its nascent stages, but the theory went, well, if we could front them the money, um, they could pay the loan back and, and then they'd be connected and they'd have bought all this time back. And so, and so, you know, not only would they, you know, would they be, uh, able to pay, pay off the loan, they'd have more income in the future because they'd have more time to work at a, at a, at a job rather than waste all this time standing in line or going on, you know, collecting water. Um, and the idea has really, Gary called it water credit. That idea has been more successful than we ever really could have hoped. I mean, it's been just wonderful to see what's happened. These loans pay off at 97 to 99%. Um, you know, these are the poorest people on the planet paying these loans back. It's really, it's really wonderful to see. And, and they're participating in their own solutions. And it's just kind of shattering this image that the poorest of the poor can't can't, uh, you know, can't, can't change their circumstances if they're, you know, if, if they're given, uh, you know, a hand up, it's just, it's just, they're given this opportunity and they absolutely take advantage of it. And, and we went from in 2012, reaching our first million people to we're, we're reaching a million a quarter now. And it's a really scalable idea. And, and in fact, our microfinance partners in, in, in the countries we work in, when we talk to them, the biggest bottleneck they identified for their work was access to affordable capital because the demand is absolutely there. We could be doing this so much more if we just had more money. And that's how we came to this concept of water equity. Just to put the question maybe to both of you, is the issue that the water is disappearing or that you have crumbling infrastructure all over the world and that you have governments that are not centralized in the way that they think about this resource, Gary? Yeah, so th there is certainly an underinvestment in the infrastructure as we see in Cape Town, you know, South Africa right now. And so it really is all about capital and drawing it in. And I think, you know, Matt's talking about kind of one end of that, that capital uh, spectrum, and that is like the poor person who needs that microloan. But what we see emerging is capital coming in from the social impact investing space. So we launched Water Equity as a spinoff from water.org, and it's dedicated solely to being an investment fund manager, raising these funds from the capital market so that we can then connect poor women with the loans that they need for water and sanitation. And so Water Equity now is in the midst of raising a $50 million fund on the heels of our first successful fund. And we've raised $37 million of that, uh, that capital to date. So so this allows, you know, to just put it bluntly, for every million dollars that an investor comes into this fund with, we reach 100,000 people with water or sanitation. And at the end of the fund life, the investors get their principal back and they get an annual distribution targeted at 3.5%. So this is like a real investment opportunity that uh, is also backed actually by uh, a 10% guarantee that we rolled into the fund as well. So the, the it's, a, it's a solid investment that's going to help poor people get more access to water and sanitation. So Matt, I want to get your perspective uh, when you talk about it. I mean, you had a high profile advertisement about this uh, that aired during the Super Bowl. So this isn't just targeted to the institutional investors. I'm wondering what response you've gotten from the broader world, the rest of us, uh, from your push and kind of what you're trying to create, because it's not just the investment, clearly. Yeah, I mean, that, it's funny. The, the, one of the 
biggest hurdles we have to clear is just trying to explain the problem because it's so unrelatable uh, for for so many of us in the West, right? Um, access to, to 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 clean water is not something that we that we tend to think about. Um, the water in our toilets is cleaner than the water that 800 million people have access to. So, so one of the partnerships we have is with Stella Artois, and and um, we've that we're in our fourth year of a partnership with them, and uh, we've reached through them one and a half million people with uh, with clean water, and and they've been they've been wonderful partners, and they obviously they did that Super Bowl ad, which was which, you know, their marketing team is just so good. They're really helping us message quickly yeah. like you know in a 30 second spot okay here's the problem this is the magnitude of it and then give p- their consumers an on-ramp to kind of do something about it do you get pushback just in terms of you know what makes you able to do this as a hollywood elite you know there's sort of that pushback from the from the uh, recent Grammy, uh, oscars you know what do you what do you say to that I'm 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 just trying to do kind of what I was raised to do, which is use whatever sphere of influence I have to do something that I think is good. And 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 in this case, it's not me kind of or Gary coming in and 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 swooping in as any kind of savior. It's 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 actually these incredibly poor people. Ninety four percent of our borrowers are women because this is an issue that disproportionately affects women and girls. Um, but they're, they're the ones paying these loans back. They're the ones doing this incredible thing. We're just, we're just trying to facilitate it. Um, and, 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 you know, the reality is we've hit 10.8 million people at this point. So I, I, at that point, I don't care what anybody says it's, it's working and we're going to keep doing it. Thank you so much for being with us, Thank Matt you. Damon and Gary White. They're co-founders of water.org and water equity on this world water day, a huge issue. Uh, they say that in order to solve the global water crisis, it would take donations of an estimated $200 billion a year. That sounds massive, but it sounds less so when you think of the $250 trillion in private capital that is sitting in global financial markets. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide. I'm Bloomberg Radio.